So I'm reading from Mark 15, verses 1 to 41. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes, down, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, 
Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Mark's Gospel. And today we're going to be looking at the passage that has just been read for us in Mark chapter 15 and asking the question, why did Jesus die? Now, we know that Mark has been leading us to this moment through his whole gospel intentionally, and he has been telling us about Jesus' authority, about his authority over sickness, over uh, the, over nature, his, uh, he's been giving us uh, pointers to who Jesus is. And of course, that's the question he keeps asking. Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? He's not just telling us a story. He is preaching to us. He's making a, an appeal to the reader. And so we're going to follow uh, in his example, really, and ask the question, why did Jesus die? And of course, we... We probably know the answers, um, uh, but also there are quite a lot of answers to this. And often when we talk about uh, this and we look at passages like this incredible, and we just need to say this is an incredible and holy uh, passage we've heard read this morning. But when we look at these passages, it's uh, we, we can come at it from all sorts of angles. And what I thought uh, we would do today is just to look at eight reasons that Jesus died, eight reasons that the Bible gives us that Jesus died, um, because it is so varied and it comes from all sorts of, all connected reasons of course, but it comes from different angles. And the first couple of reasons we're going to look at are kind of practical, pragmatic reasons. What actually happened that caused Jesus to die? What was the events, the, the, the pragmatic reasons if you like? And then we'll look at the theological reasons the Bible gives and of course this isn't all the reasons this is not an exhaustive list by any means so if there's a uh, you know I'm going to be leaving bits out here um, because the whole Bible is telling us this story Uh, this this is the culmination that quite literally the crux the cross the central point of scripture this is where we are being led uh, through the all the Old Testament uh, right from Genesis right through to the end of the book. This is where it heads. This is the central point. Someone said, "Look, if you, if history was a, a stick of seaside rock, if you cut it at any point through history, there you find the cross stretching back, and stretching forward all the way through. Uh, such an effect has it had, and as it's supposed to have. And of course, that's also why we need to look at these reasons. So let's make a start. Let's just pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll make a start. Father, we want to come to you." Uh, just in awe of what we've heard, Lord, that your dear son would give his life for our lives. Lord Jesus, it, it's mind-blowing. It's, uh, it's, it, in many ways, it's too much for us. But we pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand a bit more, just a little bit more of what all of this means. I pray it won't just be an intellectual exercise. It won't just be ideas in our heads but holy spirit would you come and let these ideas uh, live within us lord jesus this is about a relationship with you about a reality of life about a way of being and understanding and living and i pray you'd help us to live to your glory 
in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first reason in answering the question, why did Jesus die, is, is this. Jesus was extremely popular with the people, <laughs> just with the, the, the society around him. They gathered to him in huge numbers, and he, in the midst of that popularity, he openly criticised the religious elite, the religious leaders of the day, both the priests and the Pharisees. And let's just uh, talk a little bit about those two groups. So the priests were the, uh, the, the priests were a kind of a class, but also they were a, a tribe within Israel. So they were the Levites, and they were set aside to perform the religious duties and to serve in the temple and make the sacrifices and a whole bunch of other things that came with it. Um, and so they were a class of people. Um, and there was they were a mixed bag. Some were good, and some were not good. Some were kind of, I guess, like it is in most parts of society, that some were in it for their own gain, and some really wanted to serve the Lord. And so they were the priests. Um, and of course, Jesus openly challenged the way that religion was going to be run. And so he challenged their lifestyles in the sense that... Um, that religion took place in the in the temple that it was about temple life uh, and that's where god was and suddenly jesus comes and he's god on the street he's god in the marketplace um religion was austere and serious and jesus came laughing and eating and enjoying relationship with the people openly and freely and this was a huge challenge to their way of life now that's the priest now the the, the pharisees were a religious sect so they 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 were a kind of a, a particular group who took it upon themselves to be the sort of top um jews as it were and so they uh took everything extraordinarily seriously and jesus's criticism of them of which was also very vocal was that they lived their whole life on the outside they were super concerned with keeping the rules and regulations and criticizing anyone else who didn't for that matter but there was no change within them and so he even called them whitewashed tombs at one point saying look you you look like uh, it's all, all bright and white on the outside but inside you're full of he said jesus said of dead men's bones and you can imagine with that kind of criticism um, and the popularity that Jesus had gathered through his ministry, that ultimately they came to feel like he has to go. Jesus has got to go. And so that is what ultimately happened. And so in Mark 12, we read this, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. That's the, 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 the priests and the Pharisees. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So we see even there in Mark 12, they want to get rid of him. They want him arrested. They want him tried. And ultimately, they're going to have him killed. So Jesus has just told, before that verse there in Mark 12, he just told a parable about a vineyard that had evil tenants. And he was describing the history of Israel and saying, look, the, the owner of the vineyard, who is God the Father, has uh, provided, but you, and he's sending emissaries constantly to uh, to, to tend to the vineyard to find out how things have gone and and they're getting beaten up and sent away they're being mistreated and he's 
talking about the prophets over the centuries that have come to Israel to tell them that you know God's going to come and he's going to be interested in how you've looked after uh, his vineyard and ultimately the vineyard owner sends his son and they they beat him and kill him and, and so they knew he was he was again criticizing them and then their plans start to come together to have him uh, have him arrested um, and we read that there in Mark 12 okay that's the first reason we're going to have to whiz through these fairly quick but I hope that's these are helpful things secondly Jesus died because Jesus because Judas betrayed him Judas betrayed Jesus Jesus um, had 12 disciples um, Judas was one of them Judas it seems was the treasurer um, it's likely that he became greedy he certainly he certainly was re- resentful, probably disillusioned with the with the mission that Jesus was on. Um, like many, even others among the disciples, they had initially thought that this was going to be a kingdom of military power. Of course, the Romans or the occupying nation. We're going to get rid of the Romans. Was the thought? Um, we're going to take back Israel for the Israelites, and so they expected re- real in inverted commas real power. Um, and they didn't get it, and Judas was amongst those. Um, it seems that after, uh, it seems too that he became greedy as the treasurer, um, and we we sort of get hints of that in Mark chapter 14. And it was after an expensive jar of perfume was broken and poured over Jesus that Judas began to scheme to betray Jesus. Um, it seems at that point that he recognized that maybe he recognized that they weren't he wasn't going to get rich they weren't going to become rich uh, on the mission that jesus was clearly on and so in mark 14 uh, 10 we read this judas iscariot who was one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them uh, and when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him so he collaborates with the other group with the priests so he knows there's antagonism between these two groups and Judas starts uh, to uh, to collaborate to, b- b- towards the betrayal of Jesus, of which, of course, we read about um, uh, in the passage we've seen and in the previous weeks as well. Uh, so thirdly, the third reason that Jesus died, and now we're coming to what we would describe as theological reasons, reasons the Bible tells us uh, the things that happened when Jesus died uh, spiritually. These are the things that God that God did through Jesus' death and resurrection. And firstly, uh, you may have heard this word, uh, Jesus died as an atonement for sin. And we're like, well, that sounds good. And we might, <laughs> we might have heard that word before. <clears throat> but atonement is to mend the wrong, to make amends. Atonement, to be made right. And so it's... Something was wrong that had to be made right. Atonement had to be made and sin was the problem. And if we go back to, as I said, this was a, this is the story of the whole sweep of scripture. This is the whole of human history. We go back to Genesis 2 the, uh, in the beginnings and we read this in verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And again, a familiar passage. We know that's what happened. We know that's the instruction, the only rule, actually, that was given to 
Adam and, and subsequently to Eve as well. And this, um, this principle, this principle that we've read about here, about the, the danger of sin entering the world um, and the importance of obedience uh, is built into the foundation of all creation. Sin, because of its terrible destructive power and appalling outcomes, must be kept out of the world. Uh, that's, that's what must happen. Um, and, and of course, we know that it, that's not how it went. And we live in the brutal, hellish consequences of sin finding its way into our world. That's our experience. That's, that's how we are. But we're born into that. We know, we, we, you just look anywhere. You see, you see the consequences of sin. Now, you can look at this verse there in Genesis as a threat or as a warning. Look at it this way. Um, God says, the Lord says, uh, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And now we could see that as a threat, as I said. If you, if you eat this, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and, so, and we're like, my goodness, that's, all, uh, that's appalling. Or you could see it as a warning. Um, if you eat this, you're going to die. <laughs> now, I think because it's sin and because we know just the challenge of living a holy life or even a, a good life, is enormous and and in fact living a holy life is is impossible <laughs> as a human being we can't we can't do it um, and we get all we can easily get uptight and upset about this kind of verse but just think of it in this way what if what if what god had talked about was another foundation principle what if he'd talked about gravity what if he said oh look gravity is part of what makes this world work and uh, it's going to be of immense value throughout all of the ages to come. It's going to be so important for the planet and for you as individuals of the way that you live. It's vital. It's life-giving. It keeps the planet working. It's absolutely important. But you just need to know that because gravity works the way it does, you've got to have to be really careful when you go up high. <laughs> just be really careful because if you fall off somewhere high, you, you'll die. Imagine if that was the principle. I don't think we'd have the problems that we have with sin because sin is a moral issue. Um, but that might help you to think about it in that kind of way. What God is doing is saying, don't let sin spoil the world. It's important that you keep it out. And, of course, death was the consequence. And, and it wasn't just that someone would die but that death would rule over everything and humanity would inherit a world which we've talked about where death and destruction and decay are so normal that we assume that it's all there ever was and all there ever could be. Now, this has to be fixed. Atonement has to be made for this. Uh, the price of, the, uh, of Jesus' death was that all of this would be undone. The world would be remade without the curse that people could be remade, which is what being born again is, that we will be free from the curse and back into relationship with God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, we read this, Christ died for our sins. And there we read, it's like the correction of that verse in, verse, uh, in Genesis 2, verse 17. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. So when you sin, you will die. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. And we begin to see 
that atonement was being made for the terrible destructive force that we had brought upon ourselves through sin. The fourth reason that Jesus died is that Jesus was a substitutionary sacrifice. That uh, we've, we've read there, haven't we, that death was inevitable, but someone could die in our place. Someone could take that punishment, could take that consequence on himself, or on themselves. Um, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, so we won't spend too long here, but Jesus is described as our Passover lamb. Now, Passover lamb as we've read, and let's just read about it here in 1 Corinthians 15, actually. Your boasting is not good. You know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven, of course, is yeast, and we talked a lot about that um, a few weeks ago. Um, the lamb was sacrificed in place of the sons as they exodus from Egypt, as they escaped from the terrible uh, slavery of 400 years under the Egyptian pharaoh. And the final plague was death that would pass through the nation. And death was coming to every household. But if they sacrificed a year-old lamb that was perfect and they put blood on the doorposts and the lintels, then death would pass over the household, and the lamb would die in the place of the sons. It's, it's terrible, but this is the story that the Bible tells us. This, and when we think, isn't it terrible, and we withdraw emotionally from it, what we need to put in its place is a recognition that this is the consequence of sin. This is what sin has done to the world. It's made a, it's, it, it is destroyed and, and brought destruction and decay to such an extent that it's, it's phenomenally serious. I think we just don't see it sometimes. And we need to spend some time being shocked at some of these Old Testament stories so that we get the idea. We need to get it into our heads and hearts and lives. Sin is a terrible, terrible thing. So the lamb was sacrificed in, in the place of the sons and the blood was put on the doorpost. So quite literally, they were under, imagine the doorpost, they were under the blood of the lamb. Um, a, a phrase that we might have heard of if we've been around church for a while. And Jesus' death and shed blood is our Passover lamb, as we read there in the passage. And so he, he is our Passover lamb for sin and all of its consequences. The Lord doesn't look at our behaviour. He didn't look at the behaviour of the people in the house during the Exodus. It wasn't how are they, it was how is the lamb. All eyes were on the lamb. And it's the same with Jesus' death. It's not like, well, how well can I behave? Can I impress, impress God somehow? The, the, the wonderful grace of God is that all eyes are on Jesus. Was Jesus' life pure and holy? Was he worthy to be the substitutionary sacrifice the lamb slain, and of course he was. Fifthly, Jesus died for our redemption. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back from the kingdom of death and destruction. Of course, all these reasons are very linked together. It's quite hard to separate them, but that we're, we're just going to go through them and, and repeat some things, of course, as they interlink together. Um, but he died for our redemption. The only way back 
was to fulfill and complete the law. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they said, we'll do it our own way, thank you very much. We would like to be like God. So we'd like to know everything that God knows. We'd like to know the difference between good and evil. And they chose their own way. They didn't choose the way that God had offered, which was just grace, free gift. They chose their own way. And so they then become subject to their own behavior rather than God's free gift. They said, no, we'll do it our own way. And of course, the only way out from this prison of sin and death, the, the lock on the door, as it were, was just absolute, complete holiness. And of course, they realize instantly they can't, they can't achieve it. They can't get there. They can't pay for their own redemption. They can't buy themselves back. They can't unlock the cage of sin and destruction on their own. And what defines what holy was, what God required, if they were going to do it on their own, was the law. The Ten Commandments, but then all the other laws that they were given as well. Romans 7 says this, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I'm locked, I'm, I'm, I'm shackled to sin. I can't unlock the bars. I can't unlock the shackles. There's nothing I can do. I can't live this holy life that is required. You see, we weren't free. We're not free. We are slaves. A slave isn't free to choose as much as he might like to think he is. We, he, the slave is subject to the one who has enslaved him. That's how slavery works. Again, there's terrible evil, but that's how it works. The Bible says you are sold as a slave to sin. You are shackled to it. And all the while, uh, in the heart of men and women, it's like, don't God, you can't define me. Only I can define me. And the terrible truth is, well, then this is the definition. This is the, this is the plumb line. It's absolute, absolute 100% holiness. And of course, we all fall short. Can't do it. How are we going to be brought back? How is this going to be possible? How can we be brought back from slavery to sin? We can't keep the law. We can't be holy. We can't unlock the shackles. We can't get out of the prison. Well, we can only be brought back by someone who is holy, someone who would buy us back, someone who can pay our redemption price. So the, the slave owner, as it were, is requiring payment, is requiring a redemption. And so Jesus brought us back with his pure, perfect life. And when his life was sacrificed, the, the curtain in the temple was torn, the, the, the um, the, the shackles fell off, the, 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 uh, the jail doors swung open, suddenly we're free. We can now come back into a relationship with God. We are redeemed. We're redeemed, we're brought back. The next reason is to defeat evil and Satan. This is the sixth reason. Satan's authority and the rule of death was legal in the sense that Adam and Eve chose disobedience and rebellion for all humanity and no worthy price perfect humanity could ever be found and so we'd sold ourselves as slaves we'd sold ourselves into a different we talked about a, a jail but we sold ourselves into a different kingdom we'd like well we'll join the other side and that's what happened colossians 2 says this when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh of your flesh god made you alive with christ for he forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness we were legally indebted. We couldn't, you know, we, we, we were trapped, as it were, in this relationship 
to this kingdom. Uh, this legal indebtedness which stood against us and, and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, we're talking about evil and Satan, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. Because evil had to be defeated. And evil owned the world. Jesus even described Satan as the prince of the uh, of the power of the air. That's, he, he kind of governed in many ways. How was he going to be defeated? His Jesus' pure, sinless life uh, and death disarmed the enemy. <laughs> Here was one who could legally pay and reverse the curse of sin. And death and destruction started working backwards. This is just glorious truth. There in the tomb, as we sing, his his lifeless body began to breathe. And the principles that had governed, the kingdom that had governed the world since the fall and the, the curse of sin had entered the world, suddenly it was working backwards. Of course, we'd seen hints of that in Jesus' ministry of life and love and healing and deliverance and provision. We'd seen the promise of it, and now we see what it really means. Death has been defeated. Evil and Satan and all those things that go with that kingdom have been defeated. They have been humiliated on the cross. Because God himself, who would have thought it? That God himself would come. He would give himself. He didn't send just an emissary. He didn't, he, he, he didn't sort of fudge it. He came himself, gave himself and defeated evil. Therefore, evil doesn't have any grip on the followers of Jesus. It doesn't. Yes, our bodies will decay and die, but God will remake the world in his image and we will be part of his glorious remaking. And so that's why we call becoming a Christian, being born again. <laughs> the, the life of the age to come, of the kingdom that he promises, that he inaugurated, that we see as his body comes back to life in the tomb, is in us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. This is a glorious promise of all that is to come. Okay, the seventh reason uh, that Jesus died is an, an example of love and obedience. John 15, we read this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is an example of what love is. The, the greatest question that we might ever ask us is, uh, at any age possibly, what is love? We know how powerful, how life-giving, even for people who don't know Jesus, this, this can be. But what even is it? <laughs> the confusion rages back and forth. And here we have an example. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. It's the, it's the example for how a marriage works. It's an example for how friendship works. It's an example for how a society ought to work. That we would lay down our lives for one another, give ourselves, not for ourselves, not back under that old kingdom where it's like, well, I want to be like, I want to define myself. Like that's how, that is what I want. No, it's like giving your life for others. Jesus demonstrates it on the cross. 
he demonstrates it. And of course, Ben helped us last week with the, the fact that this was also an obedience. Jesus, Jesus uh, in Mark 14, as Ben helped us uh, uh, last week, I think, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible that the hour would pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Even even facing the impossible terrors of the cross, Jesus said, no, I will be obedient. And the power of that obedience to the Father is demonstrated there. And of course, the most famous verse, I guess, in the whole Bible that we would all know, that nearly everyone would know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he so loved that he gave his only begotten Son. This was the ultimate example of love and obedience. And then we come on to this final reason, the eighth reason that Jesus died. I said there are many others and there are all kinds of um, other ways of looking at them and more detail could be given. I would encourage you to go and study all these. Have a good look. Think carefully. Ask the Lord to help you with them because the depth and breadth of this is what the whole Bible is about. But this eighth reason that we will look at today is this. Jesus died because God planned it to happen for our salvation. Uh, the, the kind of the, theological word is God ordained it. He organized that this is how it should be. And we see that through the Old Testament. There's, there's probably 50 prophecies that specifically point to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there are many hundreds that point to Jesus the Messiah, that a rescuer would come. The Old Testament literally is full of signposts pointing to Jesus when he would appear. And in Isaiah 53, maybe chief among all of them, i just read uh, 10 and 11, verse 10 and 11 from Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Remember, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and through the Lord make his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Because God ordained it would happen. Right at the beginning, right when Adam and Eve um, listened to the snake and disobeyed God's one command, um, there was this promise beginning even there. The promise was this, that though the snake would, uh, uh, would, would attack your heel, that ultimately his head would be crushed. That's right in those early days of Genesis. And here we see more information about what that would be, that he would suffer and ultimately he would die, but that he would be satisfied and that he would bear our iniquities. Everything else ultimately is subject to this reason, that God ordained it. All the plans and schemes of men and priests and Judas and the Pharisees and the, all of them, they're all subordinate to this. God ordained that it would happen. God is sovereign. He's supreme. He is in charge. It was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will, it says there in Isaiah, to crush him. The Bible doesn't apologize for this. It's not, it's not giving caveats to it. It said this is, this is how it is. This is what it's going to take to fix this terrible issue of sin. And the Lord planned it in right from the start. Some have even said this. They said, why 
Why this whole story? Why couldn't Eden just have continued the way it was? Why, Sid, and some have said this, that creation itself didn't afford humanity the dignity that the Lord intended. And so the whole process of, of sin and redemption and the cross and remaking the world shows us the depth and breadth of God's love in a way that nothing else could. Now that's in many ways speculation. The Bible doesn't, dis- doesn't sort of describe it in quite those terms, but some have speculated that could be a reason why the whole story began and worked the way it did. So God was planning from the beginning to rescue humanity, to show us grace and love against impossible odds. So where does that leave us? And of course, there are many overlaps and I'm sure it's raised many questions and I hope you go and seek answers to them. But let's just finish here in Mark 15 with this. You see, there was a a Roman soldier who was watching on, a centurion, in fact, a chief amongst the soldiers, and he was watching all of this happen. He was watching the verses we read earlier happen and he saw it all in real time. He saw the events and the, the tragedy, the terror, the, the, the shock of it. He saw what happened in nature when Jesus died. He saw those watching and um, made his conclusion. And this is what he said. When the centurion, here in Mark fifteen thirty nine, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And this is where Mark has been leading us through his whole book, through all of the gospel that is leading to these and to this moment. Who do you think he is? You've heard all these reasons for Jesus' death and as I've said, there are many others and many details that we've not been able to go into. It's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour. But it still leads us to the question that this centurion answered and you need to answer it too. Who do you say he is? Who do you think Jesus is? Is he a saviour? Is he a madman? Who do you say he is? Mark is asking you that question. I'm asking you that question. Christendom is asking you that question. The Father is asking you that question. Who is Jesus? Jesus.